Alright, welcome back. Um, I am once again recording this in advance, but I hope that the midterm went well, that there were no technical kerfuffles. I literally just finished uploading it to Canvas today, um, so I'm guessing that everything is going to go alright, but of course nothing is ever perfect. Um, but anyway, enough about that, and enough about all this bureaucratic nonsense with coronavirus. Let's finally talk about the Iliad. Um, so, first off, uh, we're working with a fairly unique translation. Um, like, I imagine that you've encountered the Iliad before. Um, you probably talked about it in your high school English class, or at least, you know, discussed it to some degree. Um, there are a lot of translations of the Iliad out there, and the one that we're using is Stanley Lombardo's uh, Essential Homer, which is conveniently both sort of up-to-date and fairly easy language. Um, and also a really good editing, like a, a very good expurgated version where, you know, we don't have the entire text to run through. Um, Lombardo very conveniently omits a lot of the more boring or less involved, less thematically relevant parts of the text. Um, but I'm a huge fan of Lombardo. This is the translation I used when I was an undergrad. Um, and I kind of fell in love with it. Um, like, as much as Fagel's has kind of become the default translation of Homer in recent memory, um, I find that his language is just a little too highfalutin for my purposes. Lombardo keeps the Greek real. Um, he is not afraid to translate, you know, insults into just insults, like dog-faced Agamemnon, or, you know, Achilles swearing at his troops when he goes back to his tent. Um, like, that's how the Greeks would have seen it. It would not have been this ornate, elaborate, carefully, like, preserved historical document. It would have been in their language at their time. Um, as much as this became a sacred religious institution in its own right, it was still it was still phrased in their vernacular, their common day language. Um, and I think Lombardo gets that, which is nice because, you know, it's after all of the stuff that we've read in this class that has been extremely old fashioned um, between Apollodorus's like crazy dense antiquated language and Hesiod with his scattershot like stories within stories approach. Um, I think reading Homer with Lombardo's translation is actually a much more straightforward and much easier business. Um, so I hope that you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, but I want to start looking at the text from what is literally the very first word, um, rage. See, in all of our Homeric epics and in most of the epic traditions uh, that sort of like sprang from them or seem to exist at about the same time, uh, one of the things that you'll notice is that um, Homer, as well as Hesiod for that matter, though we didn't talk about it, starts with an invocation of, to the muses. Um, the muses are the goddesses of poetry and of all of the arts generally, but mostly we're dealing here with Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. Um, but you'll notice that this invocation is, you know, to sing, like, Muse, help me to put together this this work of art, this song that I am about to sing, but also sing of rage. Um, and many translations don't get the way that the actual sentence works here. Um, Greek is unique insofar as you can put the, the words in any order in any given sentence. Uh, since they're all declined, uh, ev every word has a little marker attached to it as far as what it does in the sentence. Is it an object? Is it a subject? Um, 
so, you know, because of that, the first word in the Iliad is rage, um, just as the first word in the Odyssey is memory. Um, it's difficult frequently for us to be able to, like, make our sentence match that. Usually we don't phrase English sentences around the object, like sing of rage. Um, but Lombardo just doesn't care. He just starts with rage. Rage, sing goddess Achilles's rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds, as Zeus's will was done. Like, I don't know about you, but that's friggin' awesome as far as an epic opening is concerned. Like, I realize, again, the, there's such a body of language and discussion and just history around this text. Like, the Iliad is the first, greatest, most important text in all of Western literature. And it's easy to forget how freaking visceral this opening is. Sing of rage. The rage that killed Greeks incalculable Greeks pitched them into the underworld and left their bodies to rot like what the hell kind of opening is that like just it's so easy to lose track of that but it's also significant for us that this text starts with its primary theme rage um, this is a poem about rage and about all the good things that rage can do and all the bad things that rage can do. And Homer is aware of both and is sort of singing about both. He is singing about the devastation of Achilles' rage, but also how ultimately that's going to be what brings the Trojans to their knees. That's how the Greeks are going to win this war. Rage is productive as much as it is destructive. Um, and we're not going to see a lot of that early. Like, we'll definitely come back to this theme of rage, but do keep in mind as we read through this text that this is essentially a book about rage, about anger, about wrath. Um, and look for the ways that it's used. Like, it's... The Greek isn't exactly a one-to-one -one translation with the English word rage, so do think in terms of just anger generally. Um, but think more broadly than just like blind, destructive anger. Think of the anger that is necessary to wage war in this time, in this situation. Um, think about rage in a broader sense than we would usually discuss it. Um, but that said, I do want to, like, I can't obviously talk about literally everything that's going on in this text. There's only so much time. I do want to keep these lectures around an hour to an hour and 15 minutes apiece. And I am planning on doing two a week, which is probably going to kill me by the end of the semester. But whatever, we'll find out. Um, but I do need to, like, jump through and look at sort of some of the main highlights. If there's other stuff that I am not hitting in the lecture, that's what the Q&As are for. That's what the discussion board is for. By all means, ask me questions about it. Um, let me know that you want to talk about some of the stuff that I skipped over. Um, but I do want to talk about the situation, the setup here. One of the other famous praises of Homer is that he starts in medias res. Um, he starts in the middle of the story. He does not start with, you know, the bargain of Odysseus where all the suitors agree that they're going to, like, defend Menelaus and Helen. He doesn't start even with, like, them arise, arriving on the shores of Troy. Um, he starts, and the Trojan War has already been underway 
for a long time. This is the last year of the Trojan War. Um, so you've got to imagine this is this is a battlefield where they have been hanging out far from home, far from their families for nine long years. Um, these people are tired. The soldiers have been fighting like on a nigh daily basis for almost as long as they can remember in some cases. And there are some young guys here. Like Achilles is probably only in his early 30s or late 20s. Um, he's probably lived his entire adult life on the Trojan War battlefield um, because he's younger than most of the guys who are really involved, as you know he'll mention a little bit later on. Um, but keep in mind, like, this is exhausting. It is obnoxious. This is the war that will not end. Um, and what's worse is we come into it and it's just gotten worse. Um, Apollo has set plague over the entire encampment. And if it isn't, you know, completely obvious from history, when you were a military force encamped, stuck in an, in a long, involved siege, the last thing you want is to have a plague start coming through. Like, you're talking about social distancing now, and all of us, you know, trapped in our homes, not allowed to interact with each other. Imagine that times ten, because all of these people are literally crammed together in their tents. Um, the livestock, the dogs are dying, and now the people are dying, and everyone knows they're completely screwed. Unless they make Apollo happy, unless they figure out why he's upset. So when Crises comes up and says, hey, it's because, you know, you took my daughter and Agamemnon gets mad at him because, you know, why does Crises always have bad news for Agamemnon? Why can't he do one good prophecy? Um, this is a really tense situation for Agamemnon to be in. He's dealing with, like, absolutely bottomed out morale in his army. And one of the things that we should be mindful of is the text is really critical of Agamemnon. Like, as much as he is the leader of the Greeks, Homer does not like him at all. Um, he is portrayed as being petty and small-minded and not even a very good general. Um, like, the mythic tradition sort of has Agamemnon in this position by default. He was not, you know, just recognizes this brilliant strategist. That's Odysseus. He wasn't this grand warrior. That's Ajax or Achilles. Um, he's not even the one who's personally involved in the affront. That's Menelaus. He's the one who, you know, Helen was stolen from. So Agamemnon is kind of just, he owns a lot of land and he has a lot of troops. And as a result, we're going to make him the general of our big army. And even this is kind of a new development. Like, again, the mythic tradition has Achilles as being the guy in charge as, far, as long as they're on the, on the sea. Agamemnon is just in charge as long as they're on land. Um, so he's very much in this sort of tenuous position. Nobody really respects his authority, least of all Achilles. Um, so, you know, Agamemnon is stuck between trying to do what the gods want and keeping his troops happy, but also um, not looking like a wimp because most of his troops could probably beat the crap out of him and he has been, like, leading from behind for basically the duration of the war because he's really not that great a soldier. Um, like, there's one point, we're not going to read it, where he actually, like, gears up and is ready to fight and he, like, kills one guy and then he gets wounded and he's done. Like, he's not terribly impressive. Um, but worse than that, he's just totally mismanaging the situation. He is bad at being a general. Um, 
so look at this confrontation between him and Achilles, um, and for that matter, him and Calchas. Like, when Calchas comes up, Agamemnon's response is, You damn soothsayer, you've never given me a good omen yet. You take some kind of perverse pleasure in prophesizing doom, don't you? Not a single favorable omen ever. Nothing good ever happens. And now you stand here uttering oracles before the Greeks, telling us that your great ballista god has given us all this trouble because I was unwilling to accept the ransom for Chrysi's daughter, but preferred instead to keep her in my tent. And why shouldn't I? I like her better than my wife Clytemnestra. She's no worse than her when it comes to looks, body, mind, or ability. Still, I'll give her back, if that's what's best. I don't want to see the army destroyed like this. But I want another prize ready for me right away. I'm not going to be the only Greek without a prize. It wouldn't be right. And you all see where mine is going. So, even this first speech, this first instance of us seeing Agamemnon, he is being super selfish. He is not recognizing that he needs to give this person up for the good of his troops, and he's not willing to give her up for the good of the troops. And part of that is the culture. Like, honor is very much indicated by your gifts. Um, notice how upset Achilles gets when Agamemnon runs away with Briseis. Um, for the entire general of the Greek army to be the one guy who did not, you know, carry off a concubine from their sacking of Thebes, that would be weird, like dishonorable, disrespectful. Agamemnon isn't totally unwarranted here. But at the same time, people are dying left and right. This whole mad, crazy trip to um, Troy has kind of come to this point where it might all fall apart. And Agamemnon is whining about, hey, what about mine? Like, you can't just take my stuff. Why Why? Why is it always me who, who loses the stuff? Um, so Achilles calls him out on this, and he's kind of warranted here. Where do you think, son of Atreus, you greedy glory hound, the magnanimous Greeks are going to get another prize for you? Do you think we have some kind of stockpile and reserve? Every town in the area has been sacked, and all the stuff divided. You want the men to count it all back and redistribute it? All right, you give the girl back to the god. The army will repay you three and four times over, when and if Zeus allows us to rip Troy down to its foundations. I.e., We'll definitely pay you back, but you can't very well expect us to completely reorganize all the stuff that we've gotten at this point. Like, people have their gifts. It's done. I'm sorry that you lost yours. Oh well. But Agamemnon loses it. He's mad at Achilles. And again, he's defending his position here. Like, Achilles is presenting a direct threat to his authority. So on the one hand, Agamemnon is, you know doing what a good general has to do. He has to stand up to this guy. He has to, you know, put down this dissent. But on the other hand, again, it's selfishly motivated. You may be a good man in a fight, Achilles, and look like a god, but don't try to put one over on me. It won't work. So while you have your prize, you want me to sit tight and do without, give the girl back just like that? Now maybe if the army in a generous spirit voted me some suitable prize of their own choice, something fair, but if it doesn't, I'll just go take something myself. Your prize, perhaps, or Ajax's, or Odysseus's, or who, and whoever she belongs to, it'll stick in his throat. He's not using this as an opportunity to defend his position. He's not interested in defending his honor. He's doing this spitefully. Um, like, yes, he could have good motivations behind the scenes, but the way that it's being presented to us by Homer, he doesn't. Um, like, you can defend all of Agamemnon's actions. You cannot defend the way that he is conducting them. So it makes sense that just a little bit later, Achilles, after having Briseis taken away from him, He's sitting there almost ready to stab him. Like, Athena has to intervene, swoop down, and, like, tell Achilles, uh, you don't want to kill the general of your army right now in front of everyone. Even though Achilles totally could. Um, 
he's warranted both from the perspective of you have wronged me this is a personal affront but also from the perspective of this guy needs to be taken out of power like Agamemnon is a threat to the entire Achaean army um if this continues if this bad mismanagement of the army continues who knows what will happen they're certainly not going to take Troy with this guy in charge um and honestly it's not going to be Agamemnon who wins Troy it's going to be the ingenuity of Odysseus it's going to be his Trojan horse plot further down the road um so you know again the text is really not generous to Agamemnon and weirdly this is also going to be one of the few times we actually see him like you would think that he'd be this major character that he's you know the Greek general he's going to have all of the strings to pull all of the lines he's you know you think of a Shakespeare play and it's the king who gets all the good lines Agamemnon is going to be in this scene and a couple more that we're not going to read and that's it um he's not the focus of this text he is in some ways a villain um he's opposed to achilles he is an obstacle to be overcome but he's not terribly interesting to homer as a result um his rage his anger is petty and unmotivated by anything good or honorable and is therefore just sort of a sideshow um instead homer's going to spend a lot more time looking at the struggles that achilles and hector have because those are honest and good conversations to have those are real moral quandaries for all intents and purposes um so you see like achilles threatens agamemnon achilles almost stabs him and athena stops him and then finally achilles goes back to his tent and accepts this um and even when agamemnon sends people to take the or the prize of achilles briseis from him you'll notice that achilles doesn't put up a fight he's actually pretty reasonable about this um he says uh you're not to blame agamemnon is around line 348 um when the heralds come he recognizes they're just the messenger he's not interested in, in antagonizing them agamemnon is his opponent his enemy and he's not going to take it personally that these guys are just fulfilling his bidding he will take it personally that agamemnon has offended him but he's not going to like whine or kick and scream or throw a tantrum to the people who aren't responsible but you'll notice what he does do um is cry out to his mom so let's talk about this because it's achilles is one of the most interesting figures in this entire epic um and on the one hand he's the central character he is the protagonist he is the hero on another side he is he is ambiguous as far as whether or not we should be following his lead he is the greatest warrior the greeks have bar none like everybody acknowledges this everybody knows that achilles can take anyone in a fight when achilles actually goes down it's because of dumb luck and the interaction of apollo um it's just a given that achilles is the most powerful warrior that they have in some ways that power is married to a sort of interest in honor and a good behavior and a strong leadership in other ways it's not that clear because just as i criticized agamemnon for getting all upset about you know this person is taking away my toy and thus i'm going to throw a hissy fit until i get my way that's kind of what achilles does as well 
he's going to sit out the battle because they've taken his prize from him because Agamemnon has not respected him. Um, and he doesn't make any bones about this either. Like, this is exactly how he phrases it when he talks to, to Thetis about this. So notice down on line 360 where Achilles is, you know, withdrawing after Briseis is taken from him. It says, Then Achilles, in tears, withdrew from his friends and sat down far away on the foaming white seashore, staring out at the endless sea. Stretching out his hands, he prayed over and over to his beloved mother. Mother, since you bore me for a short life only, Olympian Zeus was supposed to grant me honor. Well, he hasn't given me any at all. Agamemnon has taken away my prize and dishonored me. Notice the argument that he makes here, and notice Thetis's response. First, he's saying, because I was born for a short life only, I was supposed to be given honor, but now my honor is being jeopardized. Zeus gave, made me mortal, and in response, I was supposed to get tons of honor. Like, I'm the most powerful warrior in all of Greece. Like... I deserve recognition for that. Moreover, he's going to die here. He knows he's going to die here. We will see multiple people acknowledge the fact that Achilles will not leave the plains of Ilium. Um, he will die in this Trojan War. And, like, early, too. He is not going to live like Nestor to be, like, 90 and talk wistfully about all the times he used to hang out with Theseus or um, Perithous. Um, Achilles is going to die before he hits the age of 30 in all likelihood um, it's not fair he is he deserves better in some sense and Thetis thinks so too remember Thetis is a goddess um, not like a major Olympian goddess but the story as you'll remember from our brief discussion of the Trojan War uh, in Apollodorus um, Thetis was a goddess who saved Zeus's life at one point, but there was a prophecy about her that uh, she would bear a son greater than his father. So all the goddess, gods and goddesses wouldn't touch her with a 10-foot pole. Like, you know how paranoid Zeus is about getting overthrown, in the same way that Cronus was paranoid, in the same way that Uranus should have been paranoid. Everybody's worried that somebody's going to overthrow the gods at some point. So the whole plan is we're going to marry Thetis off to a mortal so we don't have to worry about her producing some heir who is going to be, like, super powerful and who will overcome Zeus. So she marries Peleus. And Peleus gives birth to Achilles, who is, in fact, like, stronger and more powerful and a greater warrior than he is. Um, but notice this builds up Achilles' situation, and notice Thetis' response. Thetis is paranoid about this. She is an immortal goddess. She has given birth to a mortal son, and she's upset about this. Um, she knows that Achilles is going to die, and the story of Thetis and Achilles repeatedly talks about how Achilles' mortality is a problem to her. Like, any tradition you follow, some of which Homer is following, some of which he's not following, posts Achilles as being this very tragic figure from the day one, and Thetis is trying to desperately overcome his mortality. Um, there's a story where Thetis takes Achilles by the heels and dips him into like this vat of ichor or something that makes him invulnerable, except on the heels, which is of course where Paris will hit him with, with the poison arrow later on in the story. Um, in another tradition, Achilles was raised among women. Like he went to a school that was all for girls. And he was brought up there and trained like a woman, the idea being that 
as a result nobody would ever want to like bring him to battle and therefore he would never have to like die in war um but apparently when you know somebody came by looking for achilles knowing that he was hanging out there they were like okay everybody take a gift here's some sewing tools and here's some weapons and achilles is like oh i'll take the weapons and everyone's like aha we know you're achilles um you were clearly a dude because you like weapons um so all of thetis's efforts have been devoted to keeping achilles out of this war and now achilles is stuck in this war but the exchange is that he will be greatly honored if he's stuck between the two choices of living a long life but having no honor and doing nothing impressive like being stuck in a girls school forever or alternatively living a short life but getting a great deal of honor achilles more gladly takes the honor um he it, it honor is worth his death um and this is a fairly common perspective among the greeks you're going to see a lot of the characters in this story fighting for the sake of honor for reputation for the sake of their name um and that's important to all of these greek people that's what that's what their their name means um like will people tell stories about me will my children be proud of the things that i did for them and for the nation um this is what every greek soldier is concerned and interested in so achilles makes that sacrifice i will die but in exchange i want tons of honor and then agamemnon takes his honor away agamemnon threatens that by stealing briseis so achilles is like i didn't make this deal i didn't sign up for this um and what's important is he really hasn't uh you'll notice in his conversation with agamemnon one of the first things that achilles throws out around line 163 i don't have any quarrel with the trojans they didn't do anything to me to make me come over here and fight didn't run off my cattle or horses or ruin my farmland back home in pythia with all the shadowy mountains and moaning seas between it's for you dogface for your precious pleasure and menelaus's honor that we came here a fact you'd only have the decency even to mention and now you're threatening to take away my prize that i sweated for and the greeks gave me he doesn't have to fight in this war he wasn't part of odysseus's bargain he was too young he probably wasn't even born at that point or at least he was young enough that he wasn't participating um achilles doesn't have a horse in this fight he doesn't need to be here he's being he's coming here for the sake of the honor and now agamemnon has screwed him over on that so on some level he's totally vindicated there's no reason for him to participate in the war anymore if nobody's going to be respecting him so what he and thetis ultimately conclude is that they're going to screw over the greeks um thetis has the ear of zeus because she saved her life that one or she saved his life that one time um they mention this again lines 410 to 420 and achilles says remind zeus of this sit holding his knees see if he is willing to help the trojans hem the greeks in between the fleet and the sea once they start being killed the greeks may appreciate agamemnon for what he is i.e an idiot and the wide ruling son of atreus will see what a fool he's been because he did not honor the best of all the fighting achaeans he's basically saying first off mom get me out of this but second he's saying let's let the trojans win for a while let's get 
the Greeks screwed. And then when they come crawling back to Achilles, like, oh, Achilles, save us from all the bad Trojans. Achilles will be like, well, fine. I suppose you should have thought of this before you screwed me over. And then magnanimously go kill a bunch of Trojans. Um, He wants to make the Greeks grovel. He wants to show the Greeks how much they need him. Now, again, this is kind of screwy. Like... Achilles is not being terribly honorable here, at least by, you know, the standards of normal morality. He's basically saying, I want my army to get completely screwed until they realize how much they need me. Which is warranted in the sense that it was honor that brought him to these shores in the first place, and is kind of mean-spirited in the sense that he's going to let a whole bunch of people die before, you know, he feels that his honor is satiated. You can read Achilles as either this great hero tragically fated to die before his time who just wants what is like what is owed to him or you can read him as an as a petulant little obnoxious brat who is throwing a hissy fit and letting Greeks Greek men die for the sake of his offended honor. Um both readings are pretty reasonable here and when we see Achilles later we're going to see exactly what his petulance, his rage, brings him to. Um, We will see him reap the whirlwind of his anger, of his pettiness. Um, Now, I do also want to talk about how Fetus interacts with the gods themselves. Like, one of the things I want to definitely focus on today is the relationship between the gods and the people that they are protecting, or in some cases, opposing. Um, So... Like, there's a lot to Homer's depiction of the gods. And again, this is sort of one of the key texts of the entire Greek religion. This is how they perceive the gods. So the way that Homer sees this is going to be the way the Greeks see this. So notice how Thetis goes to Zeus. Um, She goes to Zeus. She's like, all right. I talked to Achilles. He's really upset about Agamemnon screwing his, screwing him over. Um, I want you to give the Trojans the upper hand until the Greeks grant my son the honor he deserves. That's line 540. And Zeus gets grumpy about this. Um, this puts him in a really awkward position. Remember, the Trojan War, as much as it is, you know, a abduction of Helen thing and Paris just screwing everybody over. Remember that the basis of this was the three goddesses, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena, coming to Paris and asking which is the most beautiful of the goddesses, and Paris choosing between them. And this is kind of the defining line for the gods and goddesses as well. Um, Aphrodite fights for the Trojans because Paris chose her. Hera and Athena are pissed that Paris chose her, and as a result they fight for the Greeks. Um, so when Thetis comes to Zeus and says, hey, I want you to let the Trojans beat the crap out of the Greeks for a little while so Achilles can get all the honor he deserves, Zeus is like, oh shit, um, this is gonna make Hera so mad. So he says, this is disastrous, you're going to force me into conflict with Hera. I can just hear her now, cursing me and bawling me out. As it is, she already accuses me of favoring the Trojans. Please go back the way you came, maybe Hera won't notice. I'll take care of this. So... He ultimately agrees, and 
Hera totally saw him and totally calls him out on it. Um, in fact, the interaction between them after Thetis leaves is positively hilarious. Like, Zeus goes back to the Pantheon and takes his rightful seat as ruler. And then Hera immediately calls him out. Um, she says, who is that you were scheming with just now? You just love devising secret plots behind my back, don't you? You can't bear to tell me what you're thinking. Or you don't dare, never have and never will. So we have Hera obviously both jealous and upset. And then Zeus responds in true king of the gods magnanimous fashion. Hera, don't hope to know all my secret thoughts. It would strain your mind even though you are my wife. What is proper to hear, no one, human or divine, will hear before you. But what I wish to conceive apart from the other gods, don't pry into that. So Zeus plays the I am the king of the gods card. Like... I know stuff that you don't know about. I have secret councils that you are not privy to. Like, just one corner of my fathomless mind would drive you insane, wife. And Herod is not taking any of this shit. Oh my, the awesome son of Cronus has spoken. Pry? You know that I never pry. And you always cheerfully volunteer whatever information you please. It's just that I have this feeling that somehow the silver-footed daughter of the old man of the sea may have won you over. She was sitting beside you up there in the mist, and she did touch your knees, and I'm pretty sure that you agreed to honor Achilles and destroy Greeks by the thousands beside their ships. So... Zeus is like, you cannot fathom how great my thoughts are. And Hera's like, I know exactly what your thoughts are, and don't give me that shit. And Zeus is just floored. You witch! Your intuition, your intuitions are always right, but what does it get you? Nothing. Except that I like you less than ever, and so you're worse off. If it's as you think it is, it's my business, not yours. So sit down and shut up and do as I say. See these hands? All the gods on Olympus won't be able to help you if ever I lay them on you. I love this interaction. Um, like, I know that it's petty and mean-spirited and very, very not politically correct. Um, but there is this humanness about all of the characters here. Um, like, remember Hesiod and how no one escapes the mind of Zeus? And he emphasizes that over and over and over again. Like, Zeus is the greatest. Zeus cannot be outthought or out-schemed. Here we have Homer kind of playing with this idea. Zeus himself is like, you cannot out-scheme me. And Hera is already two steps ahead of him. And he just sulks when she calls him out on it. Um, on the one hand, there's this sort of weird balance in Zeus's relationship to the rest of the gods. Yes, he is king of the gods. He can pull them all up with a single like string. And we will see him basically just shut down Olympus at multiple times throughout this text to just make his will be done. But on the other hand, he's kind of not that. He doesn't have all of this omnipotent power. Um, he is not beyond contest. Hera can call him out on things. His knowledge is not so superior that no one can understand him. He does not have the ability to just flatten all of the other Olympian gods. Um, there are checks and balances in his power uh, here. So, like, Hera is, in fact, floored when Zeus threatens her. Like, the, the threatening of abuse is something Zeus can totally pull off, even if he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Um, and you'll notice that the reaction to this is Hephaestus getting into the situation and sort of flattering Hera and 
calming her after this interaction. Um, so Hephaestus, the master artisan, broke the silence out of concern for his ivory-armed mother. This is terrible. It's going to ruin us all. If you two quarrel like this over mortals, it's bound to affect us gods. There will be no more pleasure in our feasts if we let things turn ugly. Mother, please, I don't have to tell you. You have to be pleasant to our father Zeus so he won't be angry and ruin our feast. If the Lord of Lightning wants to blast us from our seats, he can. That's how much stronger he is. So apologize to him with silken soft words and the Olympian in turn will be gracious to us. I know it's hard, mother, but you have to endure it. I don't want to see you getting beat up and me unable to help you. The Olympian can be rough. And he tells the story of how Zeus once flung him off of Olympus and he broke his back on the mountain and therefore he is crippled from now on. Um, and notice too... After he's done, he really is the peacemaker among the gods here. By the time he finished, the ivory-armed goddess was smiling at her son. She accepted the cup from him, then the lame god turned serving boy, siphoning nectar from the mixing bowl and pouring the sweet liquor for all of the gods, who couldn't stop laughing at the sight of Hephaestus hustling through the halls. Like, remember, Hephaestus is crippled. Most versions of the myths have him, like, holding on to two robots that he built for his own purposes to support him and here he plays it for laughs um he is hobbling across the hall he is serving drinks which is something that's beneath his station by a long shot like they, they have cup bearers for the gods usually that's ganymede's job um but the fact is, he wants to hobble. He wants to look foolish. He's trying to diffuse the situation, and he does. Um, all the gods laugh at him, and he's cool with that. Remember how I said, like, early on in the year that Hephaestus is kind of the most decent of all of the gods? Like, he would be a cool person to hang out with and is just nice when so many of the other gods are petty and vindictive and monstrous? This is kind of what I mean here. Um, like, we're not going to see Hephaestus a lot in the Iliad. He's only going to have a couple of scenes. But notice how decent and even-handed he tends to be wherever he shows up. Um, Hephaestus is a good guy. Um, where, you know, Zeus is pompous and sort of emphasizes his power too much. And Hera is petty and vindictive and scheming and even, like... Athena and Ares have their like vindictive back and forth. You know, Hephaestus doesn't have these petty ordeals. Um, he doesn't have these grievances or these, you know, like feuds. He doesn't even seem to be that mad at Aphrodite for totally cheating on him all of the time. No, he wants to see peace on Olympus. Um, so it's rare in this story that we see someone who is so far from rage far from anger um who isn't upset about the situation who doesn't have a horse in this fight um and more than achilles who is you know doesn't have a horse in this fight but he's staying anyway because he's going to win honor hephaestus like really doesn't have a side here he will in fact fight for the greeks eventually um but that seems mostly because he's protecting this his investment more than anything but we'll get to that um, so with that in mind, I also want to look at the way that the gods interact with Diomedes um, in the Iliad 5. Now, we're skipping a lot here. Again, um, we're only going to spend two weeks on the Iliad as opposed to three on the Odyssey because I think that's the deeper and the more, I don't even know, like literary text. It's got more that we can pull out of it. Um, but the Iliad, like, for all of its grand significance a lot of it is devoted to just people beating the crap out of each other and weird sort of non-relevant hijinks 
Um, among them is chapter two. Like the book two of the Iliad is kind of the most hilarious demonstration of how bad Agamemnon is at his job. Um, he's basically mustering all the troops. Like he has this dream sent by Zeus that says, you know, we should attack the Trojans because we're totally going to win. And this is a bullshit dream. Zeus is definitely messing with him so he can cause Achilles to, you know, get back in the fight by screwing the Greeks over. But Agamemnon is sure, like, this is the day. We are going to take over Troy. So he, like, summons all of the troops. And there's this grand mustering as all of the different armies show up. And Agamemnon is like, all right, I'm sick and tired of all of you whining about going home. If you actually want to go home, then get out of my sight because we're going to beat Troy today. And as soon as he says it, like, the entire army just disappears. Like, they're like, oh, we can go home? Awesome. Bye. And Agamemnon and Odysseus all have to, like, clamor to get them back onto the field so he can actually deliver his speech. Um, it's just so obvious that Agamemnon has no clout here, has no ability to order his troops around. Um, what ultimately happens in book three and four is there's, like, a duel um ajax decides to fight paris of all people um and they're they're gonna like put the entire war on the line here like we're gonna have the, the these two fight whoever wins wins the war um but of course paris is a pathetic little twat and cannot fight to save his life so he gets completely trounced but before he gets killed aphrodite just whisks him off to the Trojan, his bedroom in Troy, where, like, Helen is already waiting seductively for him. Um, so, again, like, these are interesting. They're, there's a lot of substance there. But at the same time, we can kind of skip over them painlessly and just get to the fighting because they don't change the thrust of this story, especially the story of Agamemnon and Achilles, over much. Um, so we're jumping to Iliad Five, And Iliad Five is, like... Diomedes is good day. Um, you're going to see this happen fairly frequently. Like many of the Greek heroes are going to have a really good day. I believe the Greek term for it is Aristeia. It's like a really impressive hot streak um, where just one of these heroes is going to let loose and going to start wrecking Trojans left and right, or for that matter, a Trojan hero wrecking Greeks for the, in the same way. Um, and they're just going to like single-handedly plow through human beings like they're cutting the grass. Um, and Diomedes is on a hot streak in book five. Um, and notice the way that this sort of plays out because it's a great sort of blueprint for what we're going to see later with heroes that are a little bit more relevant to the plot. Um, so even at the beginning of this book, we get Pallas Athena now gave to Diomedes, Tydeus' son, the strength and courage that would make him shine among the Greeks and win him glory. Starlight flowed from his helmet and shield as if Sirius had just risen from the sea before dawn and autumn, and that brightest of stars was blazing from his torso and face instead of from the sky. Athena aimed him to where the battle was thickest, and he starts wrecking the place. Um, like, you, we get tons of descriptions of Diomedes, like, cutting people's heads off and just murdering the heck out of these trojans we rejoin the narrative here with pandara shooting him in the shoulder and it like doesn't even phase him like diomedes directs the guy next to him to pull it out the other way like pull it all the way through his body which by the way is an extremely painful way to remove an arrow also kind of the best way to remove an arrow if you can pull it off um, and Pandarus thinks, like, he's got this, but it doesn't even slow Diomedes down. Um, 
So Athena is just now totally behind him, totally empowering him, helping him to just completely wreck the Trojans. But notice the conversation that Achilles, or that Athena has with him. Um, down on line 140, it says, Go after the Trojans for all your worth, Diomedes. I have put into your heart your father's heroic temper, the fearless fighting spirit of Tydeus the horseman, Tydeus the shield. And I have removed the mist that has clouded your eyes so that now you can tell God from man. Do not fight with any immortal who might come and challenge you, except Aphrodite, daughter of Zeus. If she comes, you may wound her with bronze. So, Athena is going to empower Diomedes, but the deal is he can only attack mortals. Do not attack gods, because they're way more powerful even than he is in his currently super-empowered state. Um, so, by all means, just wreck Trojans left and right, mow them down, but don't mess with the gods, except for Aphrodite, because she's a wimp. Um, which is really what this comes down to, because eventually, like, Diomedes does, in fact, kill Pandarus, and as he's getting ready to take out Aeneas, who is a hero, and who is a big deal, and who can't be allowed to die because he's got a big fate in front of him, that's when Aphrodite swoops in to protect her son. And notice Diomedes is like, wait, alright, Aphrodite is the one I can attack, so he attacks her, and wounds her, for that matter. Um... So look at look at this interaction around page around line three forty. Um, so he's flattened Aeneas like he picked up a giant piece of stone, which is too big for any two people to lift now. Wrecks Aeneas like flattens him, and then that would have been the end of Aeneas. But his mother Aphrodite, Zeus's daughter, who bore Aeneas to Anchises the oxherd, had all this in sharp focus. Her milk-white arms circled around him, and she enfolded him in her radiant robe to prevent the Greeks from killing him with a spear to the chest. As she was carrying him out of the battle, Thenelaus remembered the instructions Diomedes had given him. He held his own horses away from the boiling dust, trying the reins, tying the reins to the chariot's rail, and, on foot, stampeded Aeneas's beautiful horses toward the Greek lines, giving them to Dipolus, the boyhood friend he valued most and whose mind was like his, to drive back to the ships. Then he mounted his own chariot, took the glossy reins in hand, and drove his heavy-footed horses off to find Tydeus' son, who was himself in armed pursuit of Aphrodite. Diomedes knew this was a weakling goddess, not one of those who control human warfare, no Athena, no Enyo here who demolishes cities, and when he caught up to her in the melee, he pounced at her with his spear and thrusting nicked her on her delicate wrist, the blade piercing her skin through the ambrosial robe that the graces themselves had made for her. The cut was just above the palm, and the goddess's immortal blood oozed out, or rather the ichor that flows in the blessed god's veins, who, eating no bread and drinking no wine, are bloodless, and therefore deathless as well. The goddess shrieked, and let her son fall, and Phoebus Apollo gathered him up in an indigo cloud to keep the Greeks from killing him with a spear to the chest, and Diomedes yelling above the battle noise, Get out of the war, daughter of Zeus! Don't you have enough to do distracting weak women? Keep meddling in war, and you'll learn to shiver when it's even mentioned. So notice Diomedes just straight up wounds Aphrodite. Not badly, though. Like, you kind of get the sense that he's charging in there and he's thrusting straight at her like she's going to frigging kill Aphrodite. And yet somehow it just, like, nicks her on the wrist. Like this wimpy little cut. And it just bleeds a little bit. Like, not even a lot. And Aphrodite is like... Ah! And loses her shit and flies away. And, and Apollo has to, like, swing in and protect Aeneas. Um, so 
Note the interaction here. Like, for one thing, Aphrodite is a weakling goddess. It's totally okay for Diomedes to try and take her out. Um, Athena even makes Aphrodite an exception when she's talking about how, um, like, Diomedes shouldn't attack immortals. Well, Aphrodite is the exception because she is a wimp. Um, and she is. Like, as soon as Aphrodite gets injured, she's out. She's done. It's not even a serious wound, and she's flying away, trying to hide, does not want any part of this anymore. And we get this interaction between her and Dione, her mother, where Dione is like, oh, my poor baby who did this to you to treat you like this. What did you do? And Aphrodite says, Tydeus' son wounded me, that bully Diomedes, because I was carrying my son out of range. Aeneas, who is my dearest, the war has gone far beyond Trojans and Greeks. The Greeks are fighting the immortal gods. Like, she whines about it. She's upset. She's... She thinks that this is the end of the world. Like, oh no, the humans are attacking gods now. And honestly, this doesn't seem to bother any of the other gods. Like, you'll notice that Apollo gets attacked by Diomedes next, and he's just not even phased by it. Um, but Aphrodite is overreacting. She thinks that this is, yeah, the end of the world. That this is a huge affront to her. And Diomedes has personally offended her. And this is like, the, like this is apocalyptic. The humans are going to take over everything now. Um, and even Dione doesn't seem to take it seriously. She says, you must bear it, my child. I know it hurts. Many of us Olympians have suffered harm from men giving tit for tat to each other. And she lists all of these examples. Ares getting stuck in a bronze jar. Hera getting shot by Heracles. Um, even Hades getting shot at one point with an arrow. Um, all of these things apparently just happen. This is not a case of like the Israelite God who is omnipotent and all powerful and like not even subject to the whims of humans. There's a weird balance here as well. Um, on the one hand, humans can totally take a god out of the fight, but on the other hand, you know, again, it was a wimpy little wound. It was just a slit across the wrist, and not even, like, a dangerous one. Um, this, she barely bled, uh, and yet she overreacts. And that's part of her character, like, part of who Aphrodite is. Um, but notice, too, that when, like, Diomedes does the same trick to Apollo, he just isn't having it. So, Notice that interaction around line 465. While these gods, namely Dione and Aphrodite, were talking to each other, Diomedes leapt upon Aeneas even though he knew Apollo's hands were there above him. Great as Apollo was, Diomedes meant to kill the Trojan and strip off his armor. Three times he leapt in homicidal frenzy. Three times Apollo flicked his lacquered shield, but when he charged a fourth last time, he heard a voice that seemed to come from everywhere at once and knew it was Apollo's voice saying to him, Think it over son of Tydeus, and get back. Don't set your sights on the gods. Gods are to humans what humans are to crawling bugs. Even at this, Diomedes only backed up a little, just out of range of the wrathful god. So, for one thing, you'll notice Diomedes breaks the rule here. Like, Athena told him, don't attack gods, except Aphrodite, she's a wimp. Diomedes is now not necessarily attacking Apollo, but he's attacking Aeneas, who is very obviously under Apollo's protection. And this is enough. Um, so let's take that apart a little bit more because there's a lot going on here that we kind of need to talk about. Um, notice first, 
While these gods were talking to each other, Diomedes leapt upon Aeneas, even though he knew Apollo's hands were there above him. So he knows, he sees Apollo. Like again, Athena removed the mist from his eyes. He can see that it's a god protecting him, um, but he attacks even so. Great as Apollo was, Diomedes meant to kill the Trojan and strip off his armor. Um, this is something we're going to see a lot. Uh, armor is your prize when you defeat another soldier, or at least like a noble soldier. If you're a peasant, you don't have armor, you just die. Um, when you beat some great hero, when you let like kill them or leave them in the dust or drive them from the field, usually you take their armor as a prize. And notice that's exactly what Diomedes is going for here. Like he is going to kill Achilles or kill Aeneas, take his armor, keep Aeneas's armor and be able to like brag to all his friends. Hey, look, this is Aeneas's armor. I totally wrecked Aeneas. Look at how awesome his armor is. Look at how awesome I am. Um, but also notice that the other reason he's doing this is homicidal frenzy, rage. Um, Diomedes is also blinded by his anger. He, to the point that he doesn't even remember what Athena told him about. Um, Keep in mind, this is also a way that the Greeks are going to perceive anger. It's something that carries us away, something that causes us to do things that are unwise, even dangerous, or possibly blasphemous. Um, he is willing to defy Apollo because he isn't even thinking clearly at this point. He wants the armor. He wants the honor that that would bring to him. He also just wants to frigging kill Aeneas because he's in this homicidal frenzy. He is in this rage. And it takes Apollo flicking him. And notice how he how it's framed here. Flicked his lacquered shield. Like I imagine Apollo like taking his fingers and just sort of flicking him like he would flick somebody on the nose. Not once, but three times. And he says, think it over. Don't set your sights on the gods. Gods are to humans what humans are to crawling bugs. Which has got to be one of the best lines that any god is ever going to direct towards a human. And Apollo frequently gets these lines, but we'll come back to that later. Um, for our purposes, notice that Apollo emphasizes the gods are way greater than humans. As much as Diomedes can in fact attack Aphrodite and can in fact wound Aphrodite, it's not a serious wound and Aphrodite's coming back. If Aphrodite decided to take it into her head to wreck Diomedes, it would be really bad and there would be no coming back from it. And it might not even be like Aphrodite decides to attack Diomedes or to try and kill Diomedes. But no, notice, like, when Aphrodite wants to screw you over, she finds a way to do it. He'll, she'll make Diomedes fall in love with, like, an ugly sheep or something. She will mess with his life in a way that Diomedes can't hope to prevent or repel. Um, she is as above Diomedes as humans are to bugs, um, just admittedly in a different way. Now, Apollo, he can fight Diomedes. He is not threatened by him, and he isn't even remotely injured by these attempts, partially because Diomedes isn't aiming for him, but also because, again, he just flicks his shield and, like, knocks Diomedes back three times. Apollo doesn't even have to exert himself to just keep this rampaging, god-empowered mortal off of his back. Um, this is not even a contest. The gods are way greater, even if they're not as great as they seem to think they are. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, there are a lot of tensions in the ways that these themes work in this book. Um, like, on the one hand, the gods are vulnerable. On the other hand, they are invulnerable. On the one hand... 
you know, like Aphrodite is overreacting. On the other hand, this is a huge act of blasphemy. On the one hand, Achilles is being a petulant little brat. On the other hand, he is totally justified. Um, these, the text is not simple. Read it multiple ways. See how these aren't resolved dilemmas that Homer is trying to respect the complexity of this situation. Um, so Diomedes can in fact attack gods, but with the recognition that the gods are way greater than he is. So with that in mind, we have to turn to the last of the gods that Diomedes actually engages with, Ares. Um, and I think the relationship between Homer, or the relationship that the gods have to Ares and that the humans have to Ares and that Homer is sort of depicting here about Ares is also really telling about the Greek attitudes here. So again... Like, in the middle of this giant fight, as Diomedes is wrecking people left and right, um, Hera notices that Ares is wrecking the Greeks. Um, so, again, like, you'll notice the gods have largely picked sides at this point. Apollo is obviously fighting for the Trojans and is screwing over the Greeks. He is defending Aeneas. He is defending Troy. Aphrodite, because Paris picked her, obviously is fighting for the Trojans, is protecting Aeneas because he's uh, her son is interested in keeping Troy safe. Ares is also fighting for Troy. But it's not clear why. Um, Hera and Athena, on the other hand, are clearly fighting for the Greeks. It's obvious why they're doing it. They were offended by Paris and the Trojans. Um, they're defending Greek honor for that reason. Uh, the Greeks are arguably fighting on their behalf. Zeus, you'll notice, doesn't seem to pick a side here. Like, he is... Hera accuses him of favoring the Trojans, but he, for the most part, doesn't want to favor either. He only favors Thetis because he owes Thetis a debt. And Thetis herself is in this complex situation where she's like, I want you to let the Trojans win because of the Greek that I represent. Um, so Zeus, we'll get back to Zeus. But for sure, we have Ares, Apollo, and Aphrodite fighting for the Trojans, and we have Hera and Athena fighting for the Greeks. But when Hera notices that the Greeks are getting beaten, she and Athena decide to team up against Ares. If we allow Ares to rage on like this, or uh, this is a disaster daughter of Zeus, our word to Menelaus that he would go home with Troy demolished will come to nothing if we allow Ares to rage on like this. Come, it's time we remembered how to fight. So... They are going to fight against Ares. They notice that Ares is wrecking the Greeks temporarily, like Diomedes is apparently distracted by something else. And it's time to take Ares down a peg. Um, so Athena and Hera are working together on this, and they go to Zeus. Notice that as well. They go to Zeus around line 805. And so notice the stanza here. Hera quickly flicked the horses with the lash and the automatic gates of heaven groaned open as willed by the hours who control access to Olympus and heaven, opening and shutting the dense cloud banks. Through this gate they drove the patient horses and found Zeus sitting apart from the other gods on the highest peak of ridged Olympus. White-armed Hera reined in the horses there and put her questions to the most high. Father Zeus... Doesn't Ares infuriate you with his reckless destruction of so many Greeks? Much to my sorrow, while Cyprus and Apollo, smug at their success, are lounging around with this mindless bully who knows no law. Father Zeus, will you be angry with me if I knock Ares silly and out of battle? So they're asking Zeus for permission to take Ares down. Um, which, 
is interesting. Like, again, you'll notice Athena does not ask permission to help Diomedes to just, like, wound Aphrodite enough to take her out of the fight. That's apparently not an issue. But they do get together to talk to Zeus about Ares. Um, part of that might be because, again, we've just heard Zeus's mandate, like, Thetis went to Zeus, petitioned for the Trojans to win for a while, so this is kind of like a direct abrogation of the Zeus-ordered mandate that the Trojans are going to win for a little bit. Um, but on the other hand, it's also like, maybe Ares does get special treatment in this case. Um, if there is a competition between the gods, you kind of want Zeus's favor on your side, just so it won't turn into a shit show, and so Zeus won't come down on you for, you know, fighting with your brothers and sisters. But notice that Zeus is also cool with this. Zeus, clouds scudding around him, better to put Athena on him. She's always been the best at giving him grief. So... Hera is originally the one asking, because again, Zeus's wife, she's supposedly got his ear, she can at least get him to do stuff. And Zeus knows that Hera isn't big on fighting, so he says, let Athena take care of this. And she does. Athena teams up with Diomedes again. He, she goes to Diomedes and says, Diomedes, son of Tydeus, I do love you. You don't have to fear Ares or any other of the immortals. Look who is here beside you. Drive your horses directly at Ares, and when you're in range, strike. Don't be in awe of Ares. He's nothing but a shifty lout. He promised Hera and me he would fight against Tro Troy and help the Greeks. Now he's turned Trojan and abandoned us. So it's okay. Like, despite the warning that Athena gave Diomedes earlier, don't fight any of the gods except Aphrodite, now it's okay. Athena is fighting with Diomedes. They're fighting on the side of the Greeks. They're going to take Ares down. Diomedes has nothing to fear. Um, and Diomedes is all game for this. But notice, too, that the way they talk about Ares throughout this section... Like in that part where Hera is petitioning Zeus, he mentions, doesn't Ares infuriate you with his reckless destruction of so many Greeks? And here, where Athena talks to Diomedes, he adds again, don't be aware, don't be in awe of Ares, he's nothing but a shifty lout. He promised Hera and me he would fight against Troy and help the Greeks. Now he's turned Trojan and abandoned us. Um, Ares was apparently fighting for the Greeks once upon a time. And then he turned against the Greeks. He doesn't seem to regard honor or loyalty in the way that Hera and Athena think that he should. He definitely doesn't regard honor the way that the, the Greeks themselves do. Um, so there's a betrayal here. And the reasoning is ambiguous. Like, there's no clear, no clear explanation why Ares changes sides. But it's fairly easy for us to, to extrapolate. Like, on the one hand, we've talked before about how Ares and Aphrodite have a fling going on, so it makes sense that if Aphrodite's on the side of the Trojans, eventually Ares would as well. The other thing we've always talked about is that frequently Ares will pick a side just for the sake of, like, opposing Athena, or vice versa. Um, Athena will pick a side to oppose Ares. For Ares and Athena to fight on the same side is kind of weird, so it makes sense that Ares would turn as a result of that. On the other hand, though, it's been emphasized before that Ares will frequently pick a side just because he wants to win and because he wants to kill things. And notice how that also comes out in the text here. 
Pallas Athena handled the reins and whip and drove the horses directly at Ares, who at that moment was stripping the armor from a warrior named Periphas, a huge man, Aetolia's finest and his father's glory. Ares was busy removing the dead man's armor and getting smeared with blood. Athena put on Hades' helmet so Ares couldn't see her, but Ares did see Diomedes, and when he did, he dropped Periphas to lie in his own gore and headed straight for the hero. As soon as they were in range of each other, Ares leaned out over his horse's backs and thrust, frantic for a kill. Athena's hand deflected the spear in midair and sent it sailing harmlessly over Diomedes' chariot, and when Diomedes thrust next, she drove his spear home to the pit of Ares' belly, where the kilt piece covered it. The spearhead sliced right through to the flesh, and when Diomedes pulled it out, Ares yelled so loud you would have thought ten thousand warriors had shouted at once, and the sound reverberated in the guts of Greeks and Trojans as if Diomedes had struck not a god in armor, but a bronze gong nine miles high. So again, let's take this apart, because I think the depiction of Ares is really telling here. Notice first, we see him stripping the armor from a warrior named Periphas. Why is Ares taking a Greek soldier's armor? And for that matter, is it even a Greek soldier? Notice that it says Aetolia's finest and his father's glory. This is a Trojan soldier. Ares is stripping the armor from a guy on his own side. He's engaged in basically battlefield looting. And why? Like, he's a god. He's not going to use this guy's armor. He's got way better armor hanging around. At the same time, you notice the details. He's busy removing the dead man's armor and getting smeared with blood. This is one of the few times we've seen an actual like heroic figure or god or goddess or any of the major characters being depicted as like getting gross because of blood. For all the people who have been killed here, and you know that Diomedes has to be covered in blood at this point. He's like murdered 50 people almost. Um, it's not quite that good. But even so, Diomedes is having a good day. He's wrecking people. He's probably covered in their blood. Um, we did see Pindarus get completely wrecked, like the spear going through his eye socket. Like, Homer is not shy about the graphic details here. But he is shy about depicting his heroes with these graphic details. These people do not get bloodied. But Ares does. The first glimpse we get of Ares is rooting around, looting some dude on his own side of his armor, and getting covered in blood in the process. Why? Like, this is the worst kind of behavior of war. And I think that's what Homer is trying to show us here. Ares represents all the bad things about war. He is gluttonous for blood. He wants to kill just for the sake of killing. So... Athena obviously confronts him. Diomedes stabs him in the gut with the help of Athena. And this is like not a, wo a wimpy wound like Aphrodite got. This is not like just a little cut across the wrist. Like this is a gut shot. Um, for any Greek soldier, this would almost guaranteed be death. Uh, to be death. Like there's not a whole lot of medical science at this point in time. Suffering a wound in the bowels is almost guaranteed to be fatal and also unpleasantly fatal. Like, there are a lot of clean kills in the Iliad. This is not one of them. Um, now, obviously, Ares is not over-inconvenienced by this. He has to, like, zip off and get healed. Um, but this is a serious wound, and his cry is warranted by contrast to Aphrodite. But at the same time, notice the way that he reacts to this. 
Ares zips off into the sky, quickly scales the heights of Olympus, sat down sulking beside Cronian Zeus, showed him the immortal blood oozing from his wound, and whined these winged words. Father Zeus, doesn't it infuriate you to see this violence? We gods get the worst of it from each other whenever we try to help out men. Why do you have to give birth to that madwoman, your marauding daughter, who is always breaking the rules? All the rest of us gods, everyone on Olympus, listen to you. But she can say or do whatever she wants. You even urge her on, your grey-eyed girl. Just now she's been egging on Diomedes to rampage against the immortal gods. He wounded Kypris first, got her on the wrist, then charged at me like an avenging spirit. My fast footwork saved me, or I would be lying in a heap of gruesome corpses, or barely alive from taking hits from his spear. Again, bullshit. He didn't, in fact, evade the spear. He totally got gut shot, and he's fine. He's definitely not going to die because Diomedes stabbed him. So notice Zeus's response. Shifty lout, don't sit here by me and whine. You're the most loathsome god on Olympus. You actually like fighting in war. You take after your hard-headed mother, Hera. I can barely control her either. One way or another, she got you into this. Be that as it may, I cannot tolerate your being in pain. Your mother did, after all, bury you to me. But if you were born to any other god, you'd be long buried in hell below the titans. And they called Paeon to doctor his wound. Even Zeus doesn't like Ares. Like... This guy is a shifty lout, we've repeatedly hear, but notice that Zeus calls him out because he actually likes fighting in war. It's significant here that this is an insult, and it's not the first time we've heard this insult either. In fact, the first time we heard it was when Agamemnon said the same thing about Achilles. You may be a good fight, but you actually like fighting in war. If anything, Agamemnon thinks that he is more honorable, he, Agamemnon, is more honorable because he doesn't do warfare the way that Achilles does. So it's interesting that the Greeks, at the same time as they recognize that war is necessary, they also resent it badly. Um, like Athena does war right, she does strategy, she is about the sophisticated business of honor and about like outsmarting the enemy, using ingenuity to overcome one's opponents. Ares is just a gluttonous, bloodthirsty monster who just likes death for its own sake. He likes killing for its own sake. And everybody hates him for this. Um, Hera hates him, uh, even though he's her son. Athena hates him, although it's, you know, partially just a rivalry in its own right, but she's also vindicated in her hatred. And Zeus hates him because he's whiny and because he won't shut up and because he actually likes fighting in war. Um, at the same time as we have this story that kind of glorifies honor and war, Ares is not respected among any of the gods here or even among Homer. Um, they respect him in the sense that they're afraid of him. But the depiction here is not of, you know, the best bits of war, what makes war necessary or honorable. It is the parts of war that are gruesome, ugly, and base, um, unhonorable, dishonorable. Ares is not somebody you want to spend time with, and it's okay for Diomedes to stab him, and nobody seems to be upset about this except Ares himself. Like, again, we get this sort of, this is the end of the world, gods are, take, are attacking or mortals are attacking God's speech, like we heard from Aphrodite, but it's mostly just whining. It's not warranted. No, this is how it's supposed to go. And honestly, everybody could stand to see Ares knock down a peg by Diomedes and Athena. Um, they all enjoy it, if anything. Um, so keep this in mind, like, the Iliad is also 
very strangely ambivalent on the subject of warfare itself. For a society that glories in looting and killing and like basically one step short of piracy, warfare itself is recognized as being fundamentally destructive. As much as warriors are respected and honored and deserve respect and honor, as much as Achilles' strength is admired in this text, it is also recognized that that's not necessarily an admirable thing to be admired for. Because you can kill people really good doesn't make you a good person. And again, we're going to see that line with Achilles frequently in this text. We're going to see Homer sort of toy with what the importance and significance of war actually is. Um, it's not straightforward. It is not obvious or clear or even univocal in its approach to fighting and warfare. Like, as much as we get all of those gruesome images of, like, spears going through people's skulls, and as much as Homer seems to revel in the description of these details, he also has an earnest caring for his characters, for the people who are killed, are wounded. Death is not honorable. Um, death is not good for anyone involved. There is no heaven in this scenario. There are no martyrs in this war. There are only tragedies, losses, casualties. Um, and Homer recognizes that. And I think that's an interesting attitude to take. I think it's an interesting and compassionate attitude for the Greeks to have on the subject of warfare. Um, I think it's very easy to see this text as being you know, bloodthirsty, violent, basically like one step short of an action movie and not recognize how suspicious Homer and the other characters are of warfare generally and what that means for each of these characters. Um, notice especially why they fight. Like, why do each of these characters fight? Hera and Athena fight because they have been affronted. They have been dishonored. They are fighting to regain their lost significance. Why is Troy fighting? It's because of Paris, because he ran off with this woman, and you'll notice a lot of the Trojans resent him for that, are really grumpy about this being dragged into this war that they don't belong to. Like, even Achilles himself says he wishes this hadn't happened. He wishes that he was not involved. This isn't his fight. Arguably, it's not the Trojans either. And we're going to see in the next section Paris get absolutely chewed out for being an idiot and being a dick. Um... But notice, again, why does Achilles fight? Achilles fights for his honor, which is warranted under the circumstances, but he does so at the cost of his life. Is it worth it? Is honor something so worthwhile that his life is worth giving in exchange? Um, the Greeks struggle with this, and Achilles struggles with it as well, and we are meant to struggle with it when we hear and read this text. Um, there are a lot of characters in here who have bad reasons for being in, in this war. We have Ares who just wants to kill for the sake of killing. We have Aphrodite who is just flattered by Paris and apparently just wants to keep that going for as long as possible. Um, we have, you know, Agamemnon who is just trying to keep up appearances and trying to act like the strategist he isn't. Um, the characters that are most interesting, though, are the ones that seem to be walking the line very carefully, who are getting closer to good reasons to go to war, but may not have exactly the best reasons. 
may be struggling to find whether they're using good reasons or bad. Um, so keep that in mind as we go forward, especially as we read the next section with uh, Hector and Andromache. Um, notice Hector's reasons for war, and we'll talk about that in the next lecture. Um, so until then, I'm signing off, and I'll probably record this lecture like tomorrow, so you know, no big deal for me, but uh, I'd hold off until you've at least read Iliad 6 before getting that. So I hope that this format is working. Please let me know um, if like that you're having technical difficulties or you can't hear my voice or if I'm not coming across or whatever. Um, like I've been listening to these as I go, um, so I think I'm doing all right, but you know, you never know. Um, anyway, uh, I'll talk to you in the next lecture.